part in the series on marriage. And last week we focused on the nature of a sacramental marriage. What is a sacramental marriage? In particular, we looked at what makes a marriage valid and licit. What is the difference between the two? And I pointed out that presumably many of you may have attended marriages which are not even valid because they didn't follow the proper matter and form. Uh, you can, uh, you're invited to uh, watch or listen to this talk if you haven't. And tonight what we're going to do is sort of bring it all together and ask this question, what does a sacramental marriage add to a natural marriage? What does a sacrament give you? And that's what we're going to be focusing on tonight. Um, hmm. It's supposed to be working, but it's not. All right, fine. So um, we're going to start, as usual, with our prayer. It's the same prayer that I'm using for all the talks. So if you don't mind, please stand. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh my God, I offer thee all my actions of this day for the intentions and for the glory of the sacred heart of Jesus. I desire to sanctify every beat of my heart, my every thought, my simplest works, by uniting them to its infinite merits, and I wish to make reparation for my sins by casting them into the furnace of its merciful love. O oh my God, I ask of thee for myself and for those whom I hold dear, the grace to fulfill perfectly thy holy will, to accept for love of thee the joys and sorrows of this passing life, so that we may one day be united together in heaven for all eternity. Heavenly Father, you have given us a model of life in the Holy Family of Nazareth. Help us, O loving Father, to make our family another Nazareth, where love, peace, and joy reign. May it be deeply contemplative, intensely Eucharistic, and vibrant with joy. Help us to stay together in joy and sorrow through family prayer. Teach us to see Jesus in the members of our family, especially in their distressing disguise. May the Eucharistic heart of Jesus make our hearts meek and humble like his and help us to carry out our family duties in a holy way. May we love one another as God loves each one of us more and more each day and forgive each other's faults as you forgive our sins. Help us, O loving Father, to take whatever you give and to give whatever you take with a big smile. Help us, O Holy Father, to make our families one heart full of love in the heart of Jesus through Mary. Immaculate Heart of Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Holy Garden Angels, be always with us, guide and protect us. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So for those of you who maybe are attending for the first time, the whole series started with the idea of a natural marriage. A natural marriage is a marriage between two people. They could be Catholic, they could be atheist, they could be Buddhist. It's a natural marriage. And what we basically shown in talks one, two, and three is that people can be very happy with a natural marriage. Happiness is not tied to religion, okay? Why? Because it's a gift from God when he instituted marriage with Adam and Eve for the whole world. He intended for all people to be happy in marriage. 
So we've gone through that and we talked about the marital imperative, the idea that you need to define, husband and wives need to define an imperative that determine the whole purpose and orientation of their couple. And the example we, the, 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 the quintessential example we can always give is that of the Holy Family. A marital imperative starts with both man and woman coming up with their own imperative. What is my purpose in life? What do I want to be when I die? When somebody writes a eulogy and says something about me, what would they say? Have I become who I always wanted to be? That is called self-actualization. And happiness in marriage is intimately tied with self-actualization. The more you become who you want to be, the more you will be able to experience that happiness. The opposite is alienation. Alienation has the word alien in it, which means you feel a stranger within your own body. Right? And as an example, if we look at St. Joseph and Our Lady, we could say that her personal imperative was given by her to the angel, let it be done unto me according to thy word. That defined her existence, and as a result, she became the mother of God. Who's Mary? The mother of God. For all eternity, she will be the Theotokos, the mother of God. What about St. Joseph? And he did as the angel of the Lord told him. Right? And then together, what do they become? What is their imperative to be the holy family? For a couple to be happy, they must explicitly define that imperative and work towards it. And if you want to get the full talk, the, the first three talks, as I said, cover the, this notion pretty um, extensively. And then um, we still have a few books of the exceptional 7% from which this whole thing has been taken. And you're more than welcome to talk to my wife and she can sell you the books that we have for $100 each. <laughs> Just kidding, it's $10. All right, then last week we pivoted over and we started talking about the sacramental side of things and what we cover, we covered what is a sacrament, why is marriage a sacrament, which marriage is a sacrament, who are the ministers of, of matrimony? When is a sacramental marriage valid? So we spent time defining what is a sacramental marriage. And so today, we're going to look at the last three questions. What are the properties of a sacramental marriage? What are the benefits of a sacramental marriage? Which marriage type best fit a sacramental union? And by marriage type, I'm referring back to the um, exceptional marriages, the ones that are highly successful. And I'm asking, which of these really fit a sacramental union? And then we'll, we'll cover that a little later in the talk today. Our references are the dogmas on marriage. There are seven of them. I am not going to read all of those. I am just listing them. And whenever you see a book on the sideline, that is the reference. In this case, it is the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott. It's the classic of the dogmas of the Catholic Church. If you want a book on the dogmas, that's the book 
you vote. That's the go-to book to vote, all right? All right, the second is obviously the papal encyclicals, letters and exhortations on marriage, and there are 14 of those. And I'm listing them here for your attention. And then you will often see either a picture of a pope or the Vatican keys whenever I'm quoting from one of those. And again, there is no way we're going to cover those. I'm just I'm giving you the references in case you later feel like you would like to read them. In case you're wondering which one you should read, I would highly suggest that you start with Casti Canubi. And if you're wondering what Casti Canubi means, well, Casti Canubi is the uncle of Obi-Wan Canubi. And if you don't know who Obi-Wan Canubi is, don't worry about it. All right. No, seriously, it's on Christian marriage by Pius XI, and it is, um, it is not a, it's not a very long, but it is very well written and very profound, very profound encyclical. Obviously, Humanae Vitae, if you have never read Humanae Vitae, you must read Humanae Vitae. Uh, this is where Pope pa, uh, Paul VI answered the question whether contraception could be allowed or not. And he answered it in a negative. Familiaris Consortio and um, Gratissimam Sane are two long encyclicals and letters by St. John Paul II. Very useful to read. And then finally, Amoris Laetitia is by uh, uh, Pope Francis, and it is the most recent uh, um, piece we have on, uh, on marriage. So those are the references for the encyclicals. And then finally, I am going to be quoting extensively from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If you want to know where you find these paragraphs, they're between 1601 and 1666. And again, you will see me flashing this graphics here to let you know that's from the Catechism. And I will give you the paragraph number as well as we go. All right. What are the properties of a sacramental marriage? Here is a dogma. The essential properties of marriage are unity and indissolubility. Unity and indissolubility. Now, I want to point to something because my title are, is a little bit misleading. Right? This dogma is not telling us that a sacramental marriage right, has these two properties. It is stating every marriage. There could be a, 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 a thinking that could sneak into our minds that a Catholic marriage right, can't end in divorce. But a non-Catholic marriage is okay if it ends in divorce. No. There is no divorce, objectively, the way God sees it. There is no divorce. It's a misconception. It's a gross error. It's a tragic error to introduce divorce in marriage, period. Now, we're not saying you can't separate. We're not saying people have issues that can work on them. But divorce is not permissible to anyone, period. That's what this is saying. The Council of Trent declared against Luther 
Christians are forbidden by divine law to have several wives, polygyny at the same time. Yeah, that was against Luther. Polyandry, several husbands at the same time, is has even a stronger, um, a, a stronger. It's forbidden in even a stronger sense because it is forbidden by natural law. Whatever natural law enacts is stronger than what ecclesial law enacts, right? Because it's enacted by God. And the reason why polyandry, having several husbands at the same time, is forbidden by natural law, because it severely hinders or at least gravely endangers the primary purpose of marriage. Christ declared that the putting away of a wife and the entering into a new marriage is adultery, and monogamy alone guarantees the fulfilling of all the purposes of marriage and is a faithful image of Christ's union with the church. Which is why it is very important that when two people are considered to get married, they understand what they're getting themselves into from the beginning. Which is why also it's not a good idea for anybody to engage in any kind of premarital sex before marriage. Why? Because it deforms the thinking process about marriage. All right? There are a lot of... Um, negatives associated with in being intimate with someone outside of marriage because it devaluates the true worth of marriage right you are supposed to keep yourself as a gift to your spouse you're supposed to give yourself only to your spouse and so even now for those of you who are not married or thinking about marriage you ought to be praying for your spouse whatever your spouse may be right now All right. The essential properties of marriage are unity and indissolubility. I'm not going to talk about indissolubility. I don't like this word. It's really difficult to say. Try saying it 10 times fast. Anyway, the Council of Trent declared that the bond of marriage cannot be dissolved on account of heresy, difficulties living together, willful absence of one marriage partner. The church does not err when she teaches that the bond of marriage cannot be dissolved on account of the adultery of one of the parties. So a husband is having an affair that is not ground for divorce. The marriage cannot be dissolved. Does it mean that they can? That the wife has to just be a doormat and accept her husband's affair? No. My recommendation to her would be to kill him, but... Um, trying to be Christian, she can separate, be the right thing to do. No, an affair is horrible. It's a horrible thing. And I'm not minimizing it. So the, the church is not minimizing the impact or the pain or the humiliation, all that goes with something like that, ever. But the church is saying that none of that takes away from that binding union between the husband and the wife. But that problem needs to be dealt with appropriately. Every marriage, including the marriage of unbaptized spouses, is intrinsically indissoluble. The fathers of the first century almost all expound the view that in the case of adultery, 
the dismissal of the guilty party is permitted, meaning there could be separation, but that a subsequent remarriage is forbidden. Okay. The intrinsic reasons for the indissolubility of marriage are imitation of the indissoluble union of Christ with his church, protection of marital fidelity, the assuring of the physical and moral education of the children, welfare, family, and society. It acts as a bond for the family, and when the family is bonded, the whole of society is bonded. When the family is destroyed, society is destroyed. I don't have to give you statistics. You just have to look at what has happened since the introduction of divorce in the West. Okay? You, you, you just look at the graphs on your own, and you will see it. Number of... Um, children living with only one parent and all the consequences that follow from that number of suicide depression the economic impact the downgrade of family life um i'll give you an example did you know that in the 50s in the 50s in the united states 50s early 60s the uh, quality of life of black people in the United States, African-American, I don't, I don't like that term, but was on par and in some instances higher than that of white people. Did you know that? The family structure was intact. But when... The welfare system was introduced and the government start to incentivize black women by telling them, if you are on your own, we'll give you money. Then the entire structure, the social fabric of life for the black community unraveled. And so black women became married to the government. And the result, the resultant, you know, higher level of crimes, higher level of uh, uh, men being in, in, in jail for that community all follows from the destruction of the family life. Did you also know that 90 percent, 90%, 90%, 90%, 90%, 90% of all kids who go to school and shoot people come from families without a father? The ills of society can be traced back to the ills in the family. That's what's being protected here. Outward dissolubility in determined cases. A ratified and consummated Christian marriage is indissoluble as to the bond cannot be dissolved by any human authority. A ratified but not consummated can be dissolved as to the bond. What does that mean? It means that if the husband and wife have not engaged in intercourse, then there is really no marriage. It could be dissolved. You understand? And this is how much the church puts importance on that union of the man and the woman, the physical union. And then Pauline privilege. And I think I covered some of that last time, but I, I left it here. A marriage contracted and even consummated between two unbaptized persons can be dissolved as to the bond of one party to the marriage is baptized and the other party refuses to continue to live with him peacefully in the married state. So you take two people who were married, not Catholic, let's say atheists. One of them discovers the Catholic faith, decides to be baptized. The other gets so mad and so angry 
that he absolutely refuses to uh, live peacefully, that would be grounds for the dissolution of the marriage. That's how important baptism is. Okay. Now, conjugal love. Conjugal love. Conjugal love involves a totality in which all the elements of the person enter. You can't love your spouse with just your head or your toes. You have to love your spouse with your entire person. Appeal of the body and instinct, power and fe of feeling and affectivity, aspiration of the spirit and will. All faculties are engaged in that love. It aims at a deeply personal unity, a unity that beyond union in one flesh leads to forming one heart, one soul. It demands indissolubility and faithfulness in definitive mutual giving. It is open to fertility. You can't have a sterile marriage. Like we said last time, if two people go to the church and say they want to get married, but one of them or both of them say, I will never have a child, then the marriage is invalid. There is no marriage. Refusal to having children invalidates the marriage. In a word, it is a question of the normal characteristics of all natural conjugal love, but with a new significance, which not only purifies and strengthens them, but raises them to the extent of making them the expression of specifically Christian values. So, when you enter into sacramental marriage, you're going to do one and two. But where it gets really interesting is in three and four, where you are going to be willing to have trust in God so that your giving becomes definitive, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, and you are open to children, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. That is the supernatural side of marriage. That's when faith and hope in God takes over. It's actually, it appeals to reason. The idea being that if you trust in God and if God is good and loving, and as the scripture teaches us, a child is never a curse. There is not one paragraph in the entire scripture, in the whole of Bible, the whole of Bible, where God says to somebody, I am going to curse you. I'm going to give you twins. A child is always a blessing. Sterility is a curse. So if God is going to bless you with a child, God is going to give you everything you need to raise that child. But you have to put your faith and trust in him first. The love of the spouses requires of its very nature the unity and indissolubility of the spouses' com community of persons which embraces their entire life. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are called to grow continually in their communion through day-to-day -day fidelity to their marriage promise of total mutual self-giving. 
You see, fidelity isn't just about not having an affair. Fidelity is about total mutual self-giving. It's much more encompassing. It's a positive thing. It's not a negative. All right. So a man, for instance, who says, oh, I've never had an affair, but who watches porn is not being faithful to his wife. A man who has never been unfaithful, doesn't watch porn, but is emotionally engaged with another woman over the internet is being unfaithful to his wife. A man who is not having any affair, is not in porn, is not talking to another woman, but works 16 hours a day, is being intellectually unfaithful to his wife. Like we saw in a prior talk, a man and a woman who are engaged in an exceptional marriage would rather do something together that they don't like versus doing something they like separately. Marriage is not about doing something. Marriage is about being with someone. It is not at the, or the order of having or doing. It is the order of being. This human, human communion, now, you can, see, you can see now how when you hit a sacramental marriage, you're starting to enter into the mystery of the Eucharist, right? In the Eucharist, Christ communes with us. Christ becomes one with us in order to make us one with him. That communion must be mirrored in a sacramental marriage between a man and a woman. So when we say that in the Eucharist, we have the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity, the whole of Christ present in the Eucharist, that's what the Eucharist is, then a man and a woman must be, in a sense, Eucharist to each other. They must be present, body, and, and mind, soul, and spirit to each other, fully present. That's what we're called to do in order to mirror or image the relationship between Christ and his church. And that is not easy to have that focused presence. Not easy. Not easy for the woman. Not easy for the man. Because it's a work of sanctification. This human communion is confirmed, purified, and completed by communion in Jesus Christ, given through the sacrament of matrimony. So, a sacramental marriage, unlike a natural marriage, doesn't involve two people. It involves three people. The man, the woman, and Jesus Christ. 
I've told you this a number of times. Why do we go and get married in a church? Why? The reason why we go and get married in a church because a man and a woman enter the church and stand before Christ on the cross and basically tell him, we, this man and this woman, we are two poor sinners. That's who we are. Yeah, we're dressed in white and, you know, all that beautiful stuff, which is great. But fundamentally, we're two sinners. And we're weak. And we're fallible. And we have vices. And we are not purified yet. So we're coming before you. And we're going to make this incredible promise to love each other until death do us apart. In sickness and in health. I don't know why in a Maronite liturgy we don't even say that. I think maybe we're a little bit more realistic. Like, no, no, we're not going to say that. That We're not that crazy. We'll leave it to the Latin guys. Sickness and in health. You know how hard those words are? You know how hard those words are? Sickness and health. Sickness. They're hard. We say we make all these promises, and we are very much like the Israelites standing in front of the mountain with Moses in the desert when God came down and covered the mountain, and all of Israel said, Whatever the Lord says, we will do. And then a couple of months later, they build the golden calf and had a party. So here we are before Christ, and we're basically saying we are not reliable. We're sinners. But you, O oh God, you are neither a deceiver nor can be deceived. So help us. And so Christ from the cross says, okay, you signed this paper. Now give it to me. I am going to put my signature with my blood. And that's a divine signature. That's another reason why sacramental marriage cannot be broken by divorce. No human force can break the, the divine signature. And then Jesus says, if you're going to be faithful to me, I will bless you. So what does that mean? It means do what my church tells you to do. Trust in my church. And I will be with you and I will bless you. But if, if you don't, well, you're going to enter a world of hurt. And how does God manifest that hurt? Through the children. Well, they end up with disobedient children who do not respect them who are wayward or lost. In that situation, God is showing the parents how much he is being hurt by what they're doing, by their own disobedience. So if we trust Christ, he, in return, through that communion, is going to turn this marriage into a Eucharistic marriage. It is deepened by lives of the common faith and by the Eucharist received together. 
The unity of marriage distinctly recognized by our Lord is made clear in the equal personal dignity which must be accorded to man and wife in mutual and unreserved affection. Equal personal dignity. Right? And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. You know, we, we'll enter into this um, notion of equal personal dignity a little later. But what I love about the catechism is notice it doesn't say which must be accorded to man and wife in mutual and unreserved mathematical equations or mutual and unreserved thought process. Affection. Affection is love incarnate. It's not just mental love. It's also bodily love. It is the whole person that expresses this love. That's what is being demanded. And there are, there, there are no caveats. It doesn't say be accorded to man and wife in mutual and unreserved affection when we feel like it. Or when we won the lottery. There is no limit to this. It's a complete and total engagement with no limit. This unequivocal insistence on the indissolubility of marriage bond may have left some perplexed and could seem to be a demand impossible to realize, which is what I was talking to you about a little earlier. However, Jesus has not placed on spouses a burden impossible to bear or too heavy, heavier than the law of Moses. By coming to restore the original order of creation disturbed by sin, he himself gives the strength and grace to live marriage in the new dimension of the reign of God. It is by following Christ, renouncing themselves, and taking up their crosses that spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage and live it with the help of Christ. This grace of Christian marriage is a fruit of Christ's cross, the source of all Christian life. I, I think this is one of the most beautiful passage of the Catechism. But I do want to point out something here that may not be obvious. Mm. He himself gives the strength and grace to live marriage in the new dimension of the reign of God. He will give it, he will give it when we ask. When we ask. And so when we ask, what are we asking for? We are asking Christ to give us the graces which are true to the sacrament of marriage. We are calling on the power of this sacrament specifically. This is telling you that there are special graces which are matrimonial graces that God gives the spouses in order to enable them to do this. But they have to ask for it. And all too often, two Catholics go to church, get married, and forget about it. The sacramental nature of their marriage disappears. Floats out of the air, and that's it. 
This grace of Christian marriage is a fruit of Christ's cross, the source of all Christian life. Therefore, as many of us who are married know, we have a predilection to the cross. We have crucifix in our homes. Right? Why? Because we know we derive our strength from the cross of Christ. And in that regard, I, I you know, I, I just want to point out to those of you who are paying attention, close attention to the liturgy in the Maronite Church, how much the cross is central. And then in particular, we have a whole season for the cross. Right? The last season in our liturgical year is the cross. And it ends with the exaltation, the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross. Right? So to call on the power of the sacrament is to call on the power of the cross to help us carry our crosses with him. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath, which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. Christian marriage, in its turn, becomes an efficacious sign, the sacrament of the covenant of Christ and the church, since it signifies and communicates grace. Marriage between baptized persons is a true sacrament of the new covenant. I'm going to insist on this since it signifies and communicates grace. Marriage communicates grace if we ask for it. And, and I, you know, many, many, I'll, I'll hit on that. Okay, let me hold on. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to that in a minute. There's a really important point I want to make, but I'm going to wait. In the view of the Catholic Church, since marriage is a mystery, sacrament established by Christ, Christ will give graces to the husband and wife throughout their married life so that they will be faithful to their commitment. So this is over and above a natural marriage. This channel of grace is specific to sacramental marriage, not to a natural marriage. We're not saying natural marriage is about to fail, not at all. Not saying that at all. Natural marriages may allow spouses to be happy, to have a good life. But its purpose, its very nature, is not to sanctify them. Which means, paradoxically, paradoxically, a sacramental marriage might cause the couple to be, well, for a period of time, to be miserable compared to a non-sacramental marriage because they're going through this whole effort of sanctification. They're going through this effort where they're being purified, where they're letting go of their vices and they're latching on on virtues. So they may not look very happy compared to people who are not even in the faith. But because they're working on something more noble and that is worthy of eternity. 
In other words, since God is true to his promises and since God recognizes the burdens and difficulties of married life, God will provide all the grace to fulfill one's responsibilities in marriage, providing we wish to cooperate with God. A Christian marriage gets into trouble either because the two parties should not have gotten married in the first place, or one or both parties in the marriage are not cooperating with God's grace because of their own moral failure. It's, it's, it's that simple. At the end of the day, it's that simple. But even if... Um, I'm going to exclude number one, if they have, should not have gotten married in the first place, I'm going to wonder if that marriage is even valid. But when they're not cooperating with God's grace because of their own moral failure, um, the party who is cooperating is still sanctified. Right? And exhibit A is St. Rita. Horrible marriage, horrible husband, abusive, horrible boys who took off to their father, and were abusive as well. But on their deathbed, they all three of them converted. And she buried all three of them. And she became a great saint. The consent by which the spouses mutually give and receive one another is sealed by God himself. From their covenant arises an institution confirmed by divine law, even in the eyes of society. It's an institution confirmed by divine law, natural law. The covenant between the spouses is integrated into God's covenant with man. Authentic married love is caught up into divine love. So, this should give us, give us hope that when God calls us to married life, we should not be focusing on the having. We should not make that the be-all, end-all. How much money? Are we going to have a house? Where's the house? How are we going to educate the kids? All those are important. I'm not saying ignore them. You don't ignore them, but you take them all and you bring them to the church and you pray before the cross of Christ and ask him to guide you. And he will. You might end up living where you wanted to live. You may not have the clothes you want. You may not be driving the car you wanted to drive. But in the end, you'll be happy and blessed. Thus, the marriage bond has been established by God himself in such a way that a marriage concluded and consummated between baptized persons can never be dissolved. This bond, which results from the free human act of the spouses and the consummation of their marriage, is a reality henceforth, henceforth irrevocable and gives rise to a covenant guaranteed by God's fidelity. If God is faithful, the couple who in spite of all their problems, remain faithful to God, will be faithful to each other. The church does not have the power to contravene this disposition of divine wisdom. What that means is, number one, since marriage 
is a natural institution, follows a natural law. It's outside of ecclesial law. It's outside what the church can and cannot do. And therefore, the church has no authority to break a marriage. And it's even stronger in the case of a sacramental marriage where Christ puts his stamp <clears throat> with his own blood on the marriage. The church has no power and no authority to break any of this. By reason of their state in life and of their order, Christian spouses have their own special gifts in the people of God. This grace proper to the sacrament of matrimony is intended to perfect the couple's love and to strengthen their indissoluble unity. By this grace, they help one another to attain holiness in their married life and in welcoming and educating their children. This here would be a sort of a universal marital imperative for every Catholic couple. Now, it could be specialized, could be uh, made particular to each one of them, but fundamentally help one another to attain holiness in their married life and welcome and educate their children. And this is, again, based on the notion that no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter how anxious you might be about the world around you, no matter how everything seems to be, you know, going crazy, none of that is stronger than God. And if God wills to bless you with a child, God has a plan. And you have to trust him. In a sense, what happened with the introduction of contraception and divorce is that a lot of Catholics became rationalist. They started to believe more in reason than they believed in God. They started to rationalize their own situation and decide on their own what's right, what's wrong. And God took second state. He became in the background. But either you, you need, we need to not be a hypocrite. We have a choice to make. If we say, I believe in God, then I believe what the church teaches about God. I believe that God is faithful and God is not a deceiver and God loves us and died for us. If we believe that, and if we also believe that God is omnipotent, he can do everything, and that he's going to do everything for my own good, and that even if I was the only one on this planet, he would have died for me. If we believe all those things, then we trust him with the family and with the children. The sacrament of matrimony bestows sanctifying grace on the contracting parties. That's the fide, the highest form of, of dogma. As a sacrament of the living, the sacrament of matrimony affects, per se, an increase of sanctifying grace. The sacrament itself affects an increase of sanctifying grace. The grace conveyed by the sacrament of matrimony is adapted in a special manner to the purpose of this sacrament. It sanctifies the marriage partners. It gives them supernatural strength for the fulfillment of the duties of their state. Like if Catholics really believed in the sacramental nature of marriage, the number of divorce among Catholic couples should be far less 
than the number of divorce among non-Catholic couples. When you look at the statistics, you'll find out that the number of divorce among Catholic couples is on par with the number of divorce among non-Catholic couples, with one exception, Catholics who do not contracept. In the community of Catholics who do not contracept, the number of divorce is about 2 to 3%. Everywhere else is about 44%. Why? It is not because they're just not contracepting. It is because by not contracepting, they're following the teachings of the church, they're obedient to God, and as a result, they receive all the sacramental graces that, they, that marriage gives them in order to be sanctified and to receive the supernatural strength for the fulfillment of their duties of their state. Together with the sanctifying grace, there is bestowed also a claim to those actual graces. So sanctifying graces is graces that God gives us so that we can grow in holiness. An actual grace is a grace that God gives us so that we can do something. It is possible for us to receive actual graces and not be sanctified. Right? You can go feed the hungry. You can do a lot of good. You can receive a lot of actual graces, but you're not availing yourself of the sanctifying graces. Okay? Now, why actual graces are received? They're received so that the husband and the wife will receive as often as they require it for the fulfillment of the duties of the station. They will receive those actual graces so that, for instance, they don't um, give their children an adoption. When, when, when things get rough, when it gets hard, they keep loving their children. They keep doing what is right for them. That was a joke, by the way. Okay, um, they do. They they keep being there for their children because of all those actual graces coming through. So you see how a sacramental nature of a marriage essentially links us, unites us to Christ, and by right, by justice, God has to give us those graces. They become due to us when we are married. Christ is a source of this grace. Just as of old, God encountered his people with a covenant of love and fidelity. So our Savior, the spouse of the church, now encounters Christian spouses through the sacrament of matrimony. Christ dwells with them. Dwells with them. Dwells with them. Again, the Eucharistic nature. Which is why in the Catholic Church, we do keep the Eucharist in the tabernacle because it is a way of showing that Christ God is dwelling with us and in a marriage Christ dwells with them gives them the strength to take up their crosses and follow him rise again after they have fallen forgive one another bear one another's burdens be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ and to love one another with supernatural tender and fruitful love Those are the fruits. Those are the benefits of sacramental marriage. In the joys of their love and family life, he gives them here on earth a fourth state of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And here's a quote from the Catechism. Tertullian, 
third century, second century, I believe. How can I ever express the happiness of a marriage joined by the church, strengthened by an offering, sealed by a blessing, announced by angels, and ratified by the Father? How wonderful the bond between two believers, now one in hope, one in desire, one in discipline, one in the same service. They are both children of one father and servants of the same master, undivided in spirit and flesh, truly two in one flesh. Where the flesh is one, one also is the spirit. It is a supernatural union between the two of them that transcends the natural union of a natural marriage. All right. So now, having shown the benefits of a sacramental marriage, which in a fundamental sense is directed towards holiness, but also towards a deeper happiness, a more profound happiness between the couple, so long they are faithful to God and so long they're calling on the, on the gifts of that sacrament. Right? We've seen this before, and now what I'm asking here is which of these exceptional marriages is best fitting for a sacramental union? Partnership, modern, traditional, or spiritual peer marriage? I'm going to focus mostly on modern and traditional. So let me summarize. A partnership marriage is one where the husband and wife are excelling in competency. In a partnership marriage, there is no notion of 50-50. It's a notion of 100-100. Who replaces a light bulb? The first one to bumps into it. Who does the taxes? The first one to bump into them. Who cooks? The first one to bump into it. Doesn't matter. The competency of both husband and wife is so high that they're able to um, work together in almost all aspects of the married life. As a result, because their competency is so high, they have a greater respect, understanding, admiration, gratitude for one another. And as a result, they have a much greater and deeper and abiding intimacy. The growth in competency between a husband and a wife in every aspect of their life is fundamental for marital happiness. And then it comes in two flavors. Modern, where basically the couple is really focused on their career, in a sense. And they, they, base, they, they, they are a lot more, they don't have a division, if you will, somebody at home and someone at work. They kind of mix and match. And then traditional is where the, typically the, the wife is at home and the husband is working. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on right now. Asking the question, which of these two really fits a sacramental marriage? Okay, now, we have the happiness dimension and the holiness dimension. Okay, you can have a marriage which is lay, meaning not Catholic, not religious at all, and unhappy, right? So it's a marriage that is materialistic, impoverished, you can have holy and unhappy. St. Rita is a perfect example. She was holy, unhappy in her marriage. And there are many, many Catholics who are in that case. Many, not, maybe not many, but some 
husbands or wives who are silently putting up with affair after affair of their spouse, who are putting with infidelity, who are putting with a form of abuse, disrespect, and on and on goes. It's called the marital martyrdom. And it's not well recognized, but it's absolutely true. It happens regularly to a lot of people who suffer silently and bear the whole thing and don't let go. So it's Catholic, it's faithful, partially. It's graced, definitely. There are graces flowing at least for one part, and it's impoverished. Right? Lay and happy, there are person, there's a personal spirituality, meaning they, the husband and the wife are not materialistic. They're happy if, let's say, they have a house and they're fishing, and they're content with little, and they are part of NGOs, and they serve people and help people. Right? They're not directed towards what is materialistic. They're directed towards community and relationships, but they're not people of faith. They, their, their, their marriage can be a partnership or spiritual. And uh, I don't know when I'm duplicating this. I forgot. But, oh, yeah, no, it could be also personal, personal spirituality and conventional, not partnership or spiritual. So it's more of a conventional type of marriage. And if you're not following what I'm talking about, please go back to those three talks, and you'll be able to understand where I'm coming from. Then finally, holy and happy, Catholic, faithful, and graced partnership or spiritual peers and then or catholic faithful and grace and conventional so there's less happiness there in a conventional marriage than there would be in a partnership of spiritual peers but overall you can find um these situations someone is holy and happy okay so now the question is um which one fits best by its very nature, the institution of marriage and married love is ordered to the procreation and education of the offspring, and it is in them that it finds its crowning glory. That is the objective side of marriage. Think of it this way. Marriage is a tree, and a tree needs to be fruitful. And what are the fruits of the tree? Children. Okay? So a healthy tree is supposed to produce healthy fruits. Right? Taking a tree and sterilizing it is unnatural. The fruitfulness of conjugal love extends to the fruits of the moral, spiritual, and supernatural life that parents hand on to their children by education. Parents are the principal and first educators of their children, not the school. The parents are the principal and first educators of the children, not the school, not the church. The church is supposed to educate adults, and they're supposed to educate their children. That's the proper order. We've lost a lot. Parents have kids and then dump kids in schools or kindergartens and, you know, give it to others to educate them. What happens when Catholic parents give their children to others for others to educate them? The flow of grace stops. You understand that? When a kid goes to school, he's not going to receive the same graces 
as when he is being educated by his parents. God never intended for the family to be divided. Could you have people who help? Yes. Could you have tutors? Yes. Could you have schools even who can participate in this? Yes. But the idea that parents are going to take the kids, dump them into school, and then wash their hands would be the same thing as when parents take the kids, dump them into some restaurant, and wash their hands. Why is it acceptable that we dump kids at school and it's not acceptable we dump kids in restaurants? Which one is more important? Feeding the body or feeding the mind? In this sense, the fundamental task of marriage and family is to be at the service of life. And that's what we have forgotten. Spouses to whom God has not granted children can nevertheless have a conjugal life full of meaning in both human and Christian terms. Their marriage can radiate a fruitfulness of charity, hospitality, and of sacrifice. So if they don't have children, well, number one, they can adopt. And if they can't adopt, they can have sort of spiritual children. They can mentor, they can educate, they can help parents, they can do so much. And therefore, their life is fruitful. In our own time, in a world often alien and even hostile to faith, believing families are of primary importance as centers of living, radiant faith. For this reason, the Second Vatican Council, using an ancient expression, calls the family the Ecclesia Domestica, the domestic church. It is in the bosom of the family that parents eye by word and example the first heralds of the faith with regard to their children. They should encourage them in the vocation which is proper to each child, fostering with special care any religious vocation. The reason why kids grow up and then leave the church is because they don't see any value in the church. Why? Because they don't see any value in their parents' faith. Why? Because the parents are not setting the proper example. They don't take the faith seriously. Kids go to, to church with parents. Parents stand there, don't even participate in liturgy, look bored, not interested, have no clue what's going on. When they go home, there is never a conversation around the readings, the gospel, the homily. Nothing is discussed. Nothing is taken seriously. Why do you want the children to take that seriously? It is here that the father of the family, the mother, children, and all members of the family exercise the priesthood of the baptized in a privileged way by the reception of the sacraments, prayer and thanksgiving, the witness of a holy life, and self-denial, an act of charity. Thus the home is the first school of Christian life and a school for human enrichment, which is what I was alluding to earlier. The poorer the family, the poorer the society. Here one learns endurance and the joy of work, fraternal love, generous, even repeated forgiveness, and above all, divine worship in prayer and the offering of one's life. That's what the family is supposed to provide the children with, to train them for a, self, a sacrificial life. So this is Pius Eleven now, Casti Kenubi. By matrimony, therefore, the souls of the contracting parties, the souls, the souls of the contracting parties are joined and knit together more directly and more intimately 
than are their bodies. So when the scripture says the two will become one flesh, there is a tendency because of the Greek philosophy to think body, flesh, body. But actually flesh means human person. Okay? So here he's indicating not only are the bodies united, but the souls are united. That's pretty incredible. And that not by any passing affection of sense of spirit, but by a deliberate and firm act of the will, and from this union of souls, by God's decree, a sacred and inviolable bond arises. That's pretty amazing. Therefore, the sacred partnership of true marriage is constituted by the will of God who provided the very institution of marriage, the ends for which it was instituted, the blessings that flow from it, the will of man through generous surrender of their own persons made to another for the whole span of life, spouse becomes the author of each particular marriage with the duties and blessings annexed thereto from divine institution. So it's a collaboration between God and man together and what men are supposed to do, a generous surrender of their own persons. You can see how a sacramental marriage takes it to a whole new level. None of that can be really spoken of a natural marriage. A Christian mother will understand with a sense of deep consolation that of her, the words of our Savior were spoken. A woman, when she has brought forth a child, remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. She will rejoice in the Lord, crowned as it were with the glory of her offspring. Husband and wife receiving these children with joy and gratitude from the hand of God will regard them as a talent committed to their charge by God. Remember the parable of the talents? Right? The one who receives five, one receives three, and one receives one. The one who goes and buries it. And the other ones who actually fructifies them. Children are talents. And parents are supposed to fructify those talents. Not only to be employed for their own advantage, or for that of an earthly commonwealth, but to be restored to God with interest on the day of reckoning. And what is that interest? The holiness of the children. Conjugal faith demands, in the first place, the complete unity of matrimony. This conjugal faith blooms more freely, more beautifully, more nobly when it is rooted in the love of husband and wife, which pervades all the duties of married life. The love of husband and wife being in love, not having love, being in love, pervades, penetrates all the duties of married life. We're supposed to do everything in our marriage, all the duties, all the tasks within that love, within that intimacy. So every action that a husband and wife take on in a marriage is to be within that intimacy and to strengthen that intimacy. Any action that breaks the intimacy 
should be cast out. So, you want to go with your buddies, drink a beer. That's fine. As long as your spouse agrees and she's happy with that. If she isn't, you have work to do. I'm not saying you never go. I'm saying you have work to do. You have to understand why. You have to have conversations. You have to discover what's going on. What is breaking that moment of intimacy? If all you're going to do is shrug off how your husband, wife feels, not pay attention to her, not make her the center of and focus of your life, you haven't understood the purpose of marriage and sacramental marriage. Matrimonial faith demands that husband and wife be joined in holy and pure love as Christ loved the church, that church which he embraced with a boundless love, not for the sake of his own advantage, but seeking only the good of his spouse. We only seek the good of our spouses. That's what we're supposed to do. This love then is expressed in action. And by the way, if a husband and wife are, are both seeking what is best for their spouse, guess what? The kids pick up on it. The kids pick up on it. In a lot of families that I know, the kids are very happy when the parents go out. Why? Because they're noticing this intimacy. And notice, children are smart. Why? They love the fact that their parents are going out on a date. Yeah? But what do you think happens if the parents start kissing in the kitchen in front of the kids? What reaction the kids have when they see that? Right? In fact, there's this one comedian who was saying that uh, in order, when he tells his boys to do something and they refuse, when they don't want to listen to them, he, he looks at his wife and says, come over here. Let's kiss. And their boys start screaming. So he's using it as a method to discipline them. <laughs> Just kind of really interesting. But notice, the kids are not interested in the lovemaking of their parents. They're deeply interested in the growth of intimacy, being in love. Because from that being in love, they're receiving all the graces. That church which he embraced with a boundless love, not for the sake of his own advantage, but seeking only the good of his spouse. This love then is expressed in action. This outward expression of love must go further than mutual help. It must have it, its primary purpose that man and wife help each other day by day in forming and perfecting themselves in the interior life. It's the spiritual life, the sanctification. It's not just helping each other. That's a natural marriage. Here, we're sanctifying each other. So that through their partnership, they may advance ever more and more in virtue.
And I would add that one day in heaven, they can look back for all eternity and see the fruit of their love. What, even though they're not married anymore in heaven, but that intimacy, that link they had between each other, I don't think would just go away. They will always share something special. This mutual molding of husband and wife, this determined effort to perfect each other, can, in a very real sense, as the Roman Catechism teaches, be said to be the chief reason and purpose of matrimony. There you have it. This mutual molding of husband and wife. What is that molding? It is that personal imperative to be the man and woman they want to be the day they die. And like the author said in the book, the reason why exceptional couple have exceptional longevity, exceptional love, and exceptional happiness is that even though they meet other uh, men and women who may be more beautiful, taller, greater, bigger, throw the adjective you want, richer, they know that this spouse of theirs is the best person to help them become who they want to be who they need to be. And this is what the Holy Father is saying here. This is the purpose of a sacramental marriage. So it, when you have a sacramental marriage in mind, you're basically called by God to form an institution which is linked to divine love and which is going to sanctify you. By the same love, it is necessary that all the other rights and duties of the marriage state be regulated as the words of the apostle, let the husband render the debt to his wife and the wife also in like manner to the husband, express not only a love of justice, but of charity. Okay. Now, in Leo XIII, in Arcanum, states the following. The husband is the chief of the family and the head of the wife. The woman, because she is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, must be subject to her husband and obey him, not indeed as a servant, but as a companion, so that her obedience shall be wanting in neither honor nor dignity. So in this world today, you have two views of obedience. There's obedience of power, which is, which is the way a slave obeys his master. But then there is obedience of love the way Christ obeyed his father in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will. That is the obedience that a woman is called to have towards her husband. And it's the obedience that a husband is called to have towards God. No one is free from obedience. We all obey. Since the husband represents Christ and since the wife represents the church, let there always be, both in him who commands and in her obeys, a heaven-born love, guiding both in their respective duties, since each bears the image, the one of Christ, the other of the church. The woman is receptivity. The woman receives life and forms life in her, just as the church receives us in baptism and forms us in her. Now, this subjection, however, does not, does not deny or take away the liberty which fully belongs to the woman in view of her dignity as a human person, 
her most noble office as wife and mother and companion. So this is not an obedience where you are constraining a woman, taking away her freedom, you know, forcing her to do things against her will. That's not what we're talking about. This is a supernatural form of obedience. Nor does it bid her obey her husband's every request. This is not an obedience where he sits and says, hey, bring me my shoes and give me my beer. And this is not, this is not appropriate to the dignity of a woman. A man cannot do that. Nor in fine does it imply that the wife should be treated like a minor. It forbids that exaggerated liberty, which cares not for the good of the family. So what is really at the heart of this matter is that when you go back to original sin, what happened? Eve, Eve's sin was vanity. She saw the fruit and she saw it was beautiful and she saw it was good for taste and she took it. So attracted by the beautiful things of this world, too much, she forsook God's law. And she then took the initiative in sin and gave it to her husband. What did Adam do? Unwilling to break from her, unwilling to stand up, he obeyed her in sin. So then God takes that situation and applies the right medicine. A man, and all men know that, would rather sit and do nothing at all over having to tell anyone to do anything. We don't have it in us, actually, to be the boss of anybody. We don't like it. We would rather sit and let the woman take care of everything. We're happy with that. So God puts us in charge because he knows we don't want that. And for the woman, he curtails her and her energy so that we don't end up in the same situation as Adam and Eve ended up in. So there's medicine, medicinal um, properties to the way God structured the marriage to help both of them grow in sanctity. By the man, by being active, responsible, present, supportive of his wife, and doing all the things he needs to do in and outside the house. And for the woman to be modest, to be, um, to be willing to listen to her husband and to be willing to humble herself and not just go about doing it her own thing. Both of them then benefit from the structure of marriage. Now, here is the thing that is absolutely beautiful from Kasti Kanubi. For if the man is the head, the woman is the heart. And as he occupies the chief place in ruling or in justice, so she may and ought to claim for herself the chief place in love. What does that mean? It means just as she, the, husband, the, the wife obeys the husband in things related to justice, the husband must obey his wife in things related to love. So practically, where are you going to live? The husband has to listen to his wife. Practically, the wife knows a lot more about the, the affairs of the family. She's more in tune with those things than the husband is. He has to listen to her. In love, he has to obey his wife. That is Pope Pius XI, 1930. 
and they tell you the church is misogynistic, patriarchal. It's like, read the documents, guys. Just read what the church says. Okay. So this is what I was talking to you about. I'm not going to read the passage, but that's from Genesis, right? The woman came from man. And when they made that, when they committed that, that sin, what happened? Here's what the Lord God said. That is a curse right here. It's a medicinal curse. It is a curse to bring them back to himself. Man and woman contravened the covenant. They did not obey the covenant because prior here he told them. Yeah, down. Here. Um, here we go. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. Here is the rules of that covenant. These are the dictates of God to men. If you if you do not if you follow those you're blessed. You're living in a garden. But if you do not follow, you don't obey. What happens? Um, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. That's the curse. Okay. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Why? I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. It is in the very gift of womanhood that the medicine is set. In her own person, what he's basically saying is that when you sinned, when you committed that sin, you deregulated yourself. You are no longer according to your own nature. And I'm going to show you that in your own body. Your body is not supposed to have pain when you give birth, when you carry a baby. But also, it isn't just about um, carrying the birth. In pain, you shall bring forth children implies raising them. There'll be a lot of suffering in that. Why? Because you yourself rebelled. Your desire shall be for your husband. Her desire was for that tree. So now the desire is for the husband, but he will rule over her. That ruling is not according to nature. Right? That is a dysfunctional relationship. Why is God doing this? So that eventually the man and the woman say, enough. God, please help us. To the husband. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. What does he mean? He doesn't mean in an absolute. He's not saying to a man, never listen to your wife. He said, in, in this specific case. In the case of that disobedience, you listened. That was your sin. You didn't fight her. You didn't say, no, we're not supposed to do that. You have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Here are the consequences. Cursed is the ground. Remember, in the scripture, when you see a verb without a subject, it is a Hebraic way of indicating God. All right? When the subject is lacking, God. So when Jesus gives the woes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, there's no subject to the woe. What I mean is God. 
Okay? Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your faces you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. Your dust and to dust you shall return. All right. So where is God hitting Adam? Work. You were supposed to work here and protect your wife from, the, from, from Satan and then make sure that you stay obedient to me. You didn't. You let it go. You did nothing. As a result, work is going to be painful for you. And like I said, these are medicinal curses. They're, in, they're, they're, they're there to bring us back to God. All right. So, multiply pain in childbearing, marital remedy, inability to get pregnant, miscarriage, difficult pregnancies are an antidote to vanity. They are humbling experiences, a way of sanctification. In pain you shall bring forth children. Giving birth and rearing children infected with original sin is painful, a way of sanctification. Your desire shall be for your husband. Disordered desire turns into ordered love in a, in a sacramental marriage. He shall rule over you. Rule of lust and power turns into rule of guardianship and protection. A man who knows how and when to lead. Cursed be the ground. Blessed be the home, the domestic church. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. Obedient and well-behaved children. You can see how with the grace of Christ, these curses turn into blessing. You shall eat the plants of the field. You shall eat food that is blessed. In the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. Work is a way of sanctification. Till you return to the ground, till you're born into eternal life. Okay? This, these curses, through the death of Christ on the cross, when he assumed all sin to himself, he took it upon himself, become blessing. He didn't take any of that away. You know, pregnancy is still hard. Giving birth is still hard. Raising children is still hard. Working is still hard. None of that is taken away. But it becomes a source of blessing. Okay, why, what am I getting with all of this? I'm almost at the end of this, by the way. Okay. All right. God ordered the domestic home as a way of sanctification for the woman. The man is also sanctified when he serves his wife at home. God ordered work as a way of sanctification for the man. The woman is also sanctified when she helps her husband. So what am I saying? I'm not telling you, I'm not saying to a woman, work or don't work. I'm simply, merely indicating that work for a woman is not sanctifying. It is for the man. Rearing children and educating them is not sanctifying for the man. It is for the woman. And then we can't switch those things around unless you want gender fluidity. If you're going to say, well, no, whatever you know, applies to the woman applies to the man and vice versa, you're now negating the specificity of those curses as they were applied by God. To the woman, he said. To the man, he said. They're not interchangeable. 
So God willed that for man, work becomes a way of sanctification, and for woman, home and rearing the children becomes a way of sanctification. So again, you can, you're free to go work, but it's not going to be the same for the woman. You're free to stay home and take care of the kids. It's not going to be the same for you. A man sets the boundaries of rule for rules of conduct, protects his family physically, psychologically, emotionally, and intellectually, leads his family in the understanding of scripture, is ever watchful for the material and spiritual well-being of his family, listens, respects, and abides by his wife's wisdom. To be the head of the family does not mean never obey your wife. A man should veto a decision as often as popes pronounce infallible statements. Very rarely. Authority over his family is an antidote to his fallen nature tendency to be passive. A man is not supposed to walk in the house as if he's like, you know, a Roman conqueror. That's not what God intended for a man to do. The woman is the heart and claims primacy in the order of love. She has a keen eye for the practical day-to-day -day arrangement of the family. She knows how to best implement the constraints set by her husband. Through her leadership, she promotes good relationships between all members of the family and fosters an authentic love among them. Her own beautiful modesty teaches her daughter to seek it and her son to seek modest woman. She is her husband's best counselor and best friend. She respects, obeys, and appreciates his leadership. Her obedience to her husband is antidote to selfish love. So, when you look at it this way, it is very clear that the structure of the family can be whatever you want it to be. You can have both of them working, you can have one working at home, one working outside. That's a decision that a couple makes. But part of the decision is, as you've seen, when a marriage is elevated to a sacrament, its purpose is sanctification. And if it is sanctification, then you have to ask the question, are all activities performed by man and woman sanctifying them equally? And the curses of Genesis tell us, no, that is not the case. So it is important for the man and the woman to really thoughtfully think about that and understand how they want to be organized in the particularities of their own life to keep in mind the ultimate goal, sanctification. All right? Okay. So um, we can, um, what time is it? Okay, let's see if we have any questions, because we want to have a big group. And then after that, we can close in prayer, if that's okay. Um, all right, you guys, if you have questions, oh yeah, hold on a second. I can't hear you, he's on mute, okay. All right, perfect, no questions. Any questions? Yes. So first of all, it isn't if Mary had no sin. Thank you. Okay. The question is, uh, since Our Lady was sinless, was her labor painful? Is, am I summarizing it properly? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. 
the answer, to the best of our knowledge, is no. Two things. Number one, the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Our Lady states that Our Lady was virgin before, during, and after the birth. Christ went through the birth canal. He didn't float out of her tummy. He didn't, no, he was born like every human being, but her virginity remained. Just as he walked through the wall when he met his apostles, when he went through the door, similarly, right? So the her, her virginity remained intact. And by the way, that virginity had nothing to do with sex. People get uptight over this, thinking that somehow the church is essentially saying sex is not good. Nothing to do with this. Her virginity is simply the sign that she was the Garden of Eden in which God takes his rest. She is the garden enclosed and completely consecrated to God. That's what it represents. And therefore, because of that extraordinary way in which she was born, he was, uh, he was born without any, uh, there was no pain. She felt no pain during his, uh, his birth. But because God is just and loving, uh, she was in agony during his second birth on the cross. Right? Mary gave birth to Christ twice. Once when she bore him and two when she said yes for him to die on the cross. Yeah, And in that sense, she's closer to all the women who suffer uh, because of their labor or because of the death of a child than any other person could be close to them. If one person in a marriage is baptized but marries outside the church, is it a natural marriage or an invalid and not a marriage at all? Um, answer is that it is not a marriage at all. It's not a valid marriage unless this person received specific permission from the ordinary, the bishop. Any other question? All right, so since there are no more questions, I think we can close with a word of prayer. Please rise. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we want to thank you, praise you, and glorify you for all your benefits, all your graces, for your presence among us, for the illumination that you gave us tonight, for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we ask you now to strengthen us and give us the graces we need to be able to put the inspirations that we may have received tonight into effect and to continue to meditate and understand the beauty and the mystery of marriage, how it relates to the beauty and mystery to the union with the church. We ask all this through the intercession of Our Lady, Mary Most Holy, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
thank you so much for being here and for putting up with a longer talk. But uh, you know the drill by now. God bless you.